if you're a birth parent, you gave birth to a child, there's a vulnerability there that makes you feel like you don't have control over anything. You know, you couldn't control your body. You're not controlling your body anymore. It's doing all kinds of things. You don't know. You feel out of control of things. And so you try to control what you can. And that can, I think, sometimes lead to trying to control your partner too in those moments. And so I have always advocated for have a plan, go like talk ahead of time, you know, what you want to do and, you know, try to continue to have those conversations, even if they're at 3 a.m. and you're crying on someone's shoulder while you're just barely got the child to sleep and you know they're going to wake up in an hour. Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children. This leads to greater gender inequality and the same stale, mostly male, white middle-class people leading our organizations. We need to change this. And in fact, my hope is that many of you listening right now to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible where you make the decisions that make our world a better place. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the social enterprise Leaders Plus. If you want support from amazing like-minded peers, join our events or find out about our world-class career development programs for parents, then sign up to our monthly newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. We will open applications soon for our cross-sector fellowship program again. And until then, keep an eye on our newsletter for our free events where our fellows share their learning. Today's podcast guest is Dr. Beth Livingston, who is an expert in negotiation between spouses and also an expert on shared sisterhood, which is a topic of a book she has co-written recently. Um, and by that, she means the sisterhood between white women or white mothers and women or mothers who identify as from an ethnic minority. It really was one of those unexpected meetings of minds. I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope you do too. My name is Beth Livingston and I'm a professor at the University of Iowa and I'm a professor of management and entrepreneurship. And I also run a women's leadership program here at the university. So really thinking about how we can help women to, you know, advance in their organizations. I've been married since 2006. I have no idea how long that is. What is that? 18 years? Who knows? Time is a circle. I'm really, I'm really unclear about time these days. And I have two children. I have a 10-year-old daughter and a four-year-old son and two guinea pigs, which depending on the day, I either hate or love. So yeah, <laughs> this is the way with children's pets, I think. Is it you who's feeding the guinea pigs and mocking out or? It's always me feeding the guinea pigs. It is mom, mom, I really want the guinea pigs. And then it's, will you take care of them? Sure. And then no. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. So, you know, I like them some days and some days I curse their existence. So. Absolutely. And what did you used to believe about combining an ambitious career with young children that you don't believe anymore? You know, it's funny. I, I was thinking about this question because I, as someone who has studied this academically, right? Like, thought about how do women consider their ambitions and their but it's funny I often thought of myself as sort of outside of that debate like anything that I wanted to do I would be able to do like sure why of course I'm an incredibly optimistic person my friends like to say I'm 
like glass half full of sparkles type of person. Like I'm not just optimistic. I'm kind of like joyfully optimistic. And so of course I was like, well, yeah, I know that it's hard, but I'll be fine. And then when I was pregnant with our first child, my mother-in-law also moved in with us. We were part of that sandwich generation where I had an aging parent who was ailing and a newborn child and a tenure track at that point, Ivy League professorship job. And I was like, and my husband had a full-time job and I went, oh no, what is going on here? And I still thought that my 70% would be enough. And although my 70% is very, very good, it was not enough. And I actually didn't get tenure at my first institution. And a lot of that was because of me trying to be the person who did it all and trying to kind of save my husband that like, sure, you know, I can do it. I don't need to ask him. He's fine. And, you know, just being grateful that he was as good of a father and a husband as he was. And I remember, you know, after not getting tenure and sitting down and he was like, I should have done more. I should have seen how much you were doing. And I didn't see. And I said, well, I should have asked. Like, he's like, you know, I'm a grown up. If I don't want to do something, I will tell you that. Like, I'm, you know, give me the choice and respect my choices. And that made me realize a lot like that I wasn't treating him. I was so grateful to have a partner who kind of met me a third of the way that I didn't actually ask for those things. And I think that's one of the things that I didn't realize, even someone who studies spousal negotiation, that I could fall into those same gendered traps of, you know, surely he will resent me if I ask for these things. Surely he will not do. And that was not respecting him in terms of his ability to make his own choices. And so when we moved to Iowa and I took this job here and it was before we had our second child, he's like, I'm staying home with our daughter. We'll get this taken care of. I'll find a job that suits me. Let me, let me be the partner I think you need. And since then it has been, you know, he were, he's working again now and he stayed home with our son for a year and that's not the right choice for everyone, but it was the right choice for us. And I think for me, it was a real shift, even as someone who has very feminist ideals, very, you know, very strong egalitarian ideals to realize how quickly I could still fall into the, I need to cook dinner. I need to keep the house clean. I need to, you know, bake cupcakes for the, like to fall into all those traditional roles because of what other people expected of me and forgot that my husband didn't feel that way. And I was doing him a disservice to assume he did. And so for me, that was the assumption is that I wouldn't fall into those traps. And I did. And then to, you know, assume that I could figure it all out because I study these things and I didn't. And, you know, we're in a much, I think we're in a great place as a family now, like we are figuring it out. And look, part of that is because my youngest is now four and a half, which means we're out of potty training state. Like we're, we're in a much more golden stage, I think, but you know, understanding the seasons of everything and the seasons of life has been a journey for me, as I think it is for many women. Hmm. I can so relate to what you're saying. So I run, as you know, an organization which is all about supporting leaders with young children to continue to progress their careers. And I can so relate to the fact that even with that, and even with my feminist passion, there's still that instinct that I have to control, which is I should be able to do everything. You should be the ideal mom, ideal wife, ideal or, or spouse or whatever, you, right? Like ideal everything and not good enough anything. So it sounds like you knew it on paper, what to do, but there was a, that real shift from the experience of not getting tenure at your previous university. And, and thank you for being so brave and just saying, well, actually, yes, I do think having children and the role there has contributed to that. 
from that to now having a very prestigious role and having got tenure in your different institution, what enabled you? Was it just a shock of it or what enabled you to let go finally and let your partner do what he was clearly ready to do? There were a couple things. And I think the first was that identity shock. You know, when you go around and you're like, here's what my career is going to be. Here's what I'm going to like. Here's what my ambition is speaking to. And I'm a very ambitious person. I have very big goals and I always have. But that meant that when I failed at one of those things, it shook my identity. It wasn't just, oh, it derailed me a bit. It was like, oh, who am I now that I have failed at this thing that I had set myself up to do? And one thing that was very clear to me after the initial just like true gut punch of what that felt like was, oh, I'm the same Beth today as I was before I found out that I didn't get like I'm the same person. I have the same skills, the same abilities, the same ambitions. And the way other people have evaluated me or seen me has not changed who I am at my core. And that was the first big shift because I think and I think this is true for a lot of women because of the way we're socialized is we're often trying to see ourselves through the eyes of other people. How are these people seeing me? Whether it's how we look or how we carry ourselves or how we are at work, we're always impression managing around like, how am I looking? How am I feeling? How are people reading the things I'm doing? In some ways, that's a superpower for us and emotional intelligence in terms of we're socialized to do those things. But in sometimes it can really be a burden we're carrying that when we fail, it hurts us even more. And so that took some shaking to realize, no, I am still the same brilliant Beth, the same talented Beth that I was before. This is just, you know, closed some doors and I need to open others. We often say, I think, let's wait till doors open. I'm like, no, I'm going to open my own doors, right? I'm going to do that. And I'm going to think very carefully about what I deserve in a workplace. Because a lot of times when we have ambitions, we kind of stuff certain things about where we work down. And we're like, oh, that doesn't matter that much. Oh, that's okay. Or I can put up with this. Or yeah, that person's a jerk, but I can suck it up for however long. And to realize, well, no, now I have an excuse, which was you know this fact that I was needed to look for another job to appreciate myself more to put myself first in terms of here's the type of workplace I deserve. And so I think that shift in identity was good that way. But it also was a shock for me and my partner to have very honest conversations about what we wanted, what he wanted, what I wanted out of our life together. And we're very communicative. I'm a overly communicative person. And so he has had to learn to meet me at that place because I talk about so much stuff, which is the problem of marrying a scholar that studies spousal negotiation is we're having a negotiation right now. Let us talk about it. He's like, oh, great. Here she goes. But, you know, for me, again, to swallow what I thought the world expected of me and to truly listen to what he wanted and what he expected of me was a revelatory moment to say, oh, his appreciation for me was not contingent upon my success in this career, right? And his expectation of what he wanted for his life, I was assuming things about him that weren't true. And why would I do that? We've been together for decades. Like, well, what was I doing by making those assumptions? And, you know, I think, again, we're so self-absorbed and, and oftentimes with women, we're, we're often being like, oh, well, you know, I don't want him to resent me. Or if I make more money or have this career, you know, my husband moved around the country for me in my career. And I know how fortunate I was. And that feeling of being fortunate led me to swallow some things where, you know, because I was like, oh, he's already done so much. I can't ask him to do more. But again, he was like, that's not respecting me. Like, we should be at a place where I can say no, right? If I don't want to do a thing, you should respect me enough to have this conversation. And not in those sort of ways, but that's the the language that kind of came out to me. But it shook me to say, oh, am I treating him as a partner or am I trying to control everything about the way he sees the world too? And so I think 
we came out of that much more a 50-50 partnership than we ever were before. And since then, that has just grown because we've opened that up and I'm, I've am i let go of like, let him do the dishes the way he wants to do. Why do I care? Like, really, does it affect my life if he does it differently than me? No, right. It does not. Like, he has stricter views on certain things around the kids than I do. Like, so does it hurt me? Like, why do I need to win that argument? Like, why do I need to fight that argument? I don't care that much. <laughs> I don't. Like, why? And so I think, you know, we have come out of it as much more a 50-50 partnership. But I think a lot of times we fear having those conversations because we feel like our we have this tentative balance. But it's not really a balance at all if we have to work at it that much, you know. Mm. And you started your career, like you said, researching spousal negotiation. I'm interested, what surprised you most most when you did that research? You know, there's a really great book by Arlie Hochschild called The Second Shift. And I read that as a young woman and it like changed my life because I went, wait, I've never had these conversations. And she says something in the preface, which is the thing that came out in my own research too, which I think was really important, which was women in particular, she was focusing on women, but women in particular, but men as well as what's come out in my research is, you know, they have these attitudes, right? I want everything to be equal, but they're actually not having these conversations with their partners before they move in together or before they have children, before they, like, there's just an assumption that these are the things, like, there's not these specific conversations because there's this fear of what that conversation will look like. And even the people who study this stuff, we often don't have the conversations. We don't say, what are we willing to give up? What's your sacred cow that you're like, no, this is my ambition. This is what I really want. How can we make that happen? And then you don't have those conversations until you're to a point where your alternative is so stark that it becomes much more difficult to have. And one thing in my research was that that came out for me as a woman, I'm always taking from a woman's point of view because that's just my lens of how I come at it, was realizing that, you know, a lot of men with egalitarian attitudes were struggling with that too, because they're also having to work within a world that expects different things of them. Oh, your wife makes more money than you. How does that make you feel? Or, oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, you, you stay home. Hmm, that must be hard. Like there's, there are these patriarchal norms that affect all of us and they affect us differentially, but I wasn't often thinking about how men who truly want to be egalitarian partners might struggle in that same sociological environment. Mm -hmm. It really resonates. I'm sure many of the listeners can resonate with this experience. And so many people do start off, and a lot of my friends have saying, yes, I'm a feminist, we're really both equal. But then as soon as children come along, suddenly everyone just fits into the existing stereotypes. And the UK obviously has brilliant maternity. Well, not brilliant, but reasonably good maternity. Better than the US. Well, exactly. (laughs) And... That is partly creating the issue because not enough men are taking share parental leave. And so we've designed a system where for the first nine months or so, the woman is there taking care of the child. And then you just suddenly, you wake up five years later and there's this really weird, unequal relationship. And so we run a fellowship program and we actually have, it's for mainly for parents with childcare responsibilities to progress their careers. But we have sessions specifically where we bring the partner in. Obviously not everyone has a partner, but when they do, we force them to have that conversation. And let me tell you, the session is not, you know, it's just getting them to talk basically. There's no magic behind it. And even now, the other day I was chatting to someone and she said, oh, it was so transformational. And it's interesting just to have the conversation. It is very fascinating. And, and I'm thinking now, 10 years on from your first child, 
what are you personally holding on to? Or what are you telling your girlfriends once they start having children that they should all hold on to, to really make sure that they're approaching that spousal negotiation in a good way? You know, for me, it's a lot about control. I think a lot of us who are ambitious women with a lot of like, we have to hold on to what can we control about our environment? And because there's so much that you can't. And I think that's true, probably true for ambitious men too. I just don't, I'm not an ambitious man, so I can't tell you about that. But I think, you know, we think about what can we control, we can hold on to. And I feel like if you're a birth parent, you gave birth to a child, there's a vulnerability there that makes you feel like you don't have control over anything. You know, you couldn't control your body. You're not controlling your body anymore. It's doing all kinds of things. You don't know. You feel out of control of things. And so you try to control what you can. And that can, I think, sometimes lead to trying to control your partner too in those moments. And so I have always advocated for have a plan, go like talk ahead of time, you know, what you want to do and, you know, try to continue to have those conversations. Even if they're at 3 a.m. and you're crying on someone's shoulder while you're just barely got the child to sleep and you know they're going to wake up in an hour, you know, try to take those moments. Like there's a tendency for if my husband, for instance, were to say, let me take the baby for an hour rest. And we're like, no, 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 I'm okay. It's fine. Say yes right? Like respect the fact that that's what they want to do, that they're not just offering to be kind, but respect that and start that early by saying yes to those offers and not trying to pretend that you gain some like imaginary, like mother points by suffering more than you have to suffer. So that's the message that I often have to say is start as you mean to go on. Even if you're, and this is one thing that I did early on was, well, I'm, I'm on leave and he's not, I'll let him sleep. Because that's the kind, wifely thing to do, right? But what that meant was, again, we started off and I was doing all the things. And, you know, when we had my son, we changed that, which was, okay, yeah, I'm nursing, so I need to do the feeding, but I'll let him change and bring and bring the baby to me and then take the baby. Like, he can do those things. And if he offers, I'm going to say yes, because I deserve that and he deserves that. And that helped a lot. Very helpful. And so fast forwarding a few years, if someone is listening to this now and says, I wish I would have done all this. And yes, I have actually slipped <laughs> into this weird, weird relationship where I'm doing most of the things and most of the mental load. I might, you might be having a partner who is really forward thinking, but somehow you still end up being the primary carer. And where do you even start to change that? So I think the first thing you have to do is to start to open the lines of communication and it can't be a feeling dump. Like you have to have these conversations when you're not in the middle of a crisis, when you're not in the middle of an emotional low. You have to try to have the conversation when you're both at a at a good state of mind and you don't have to have a solution to start the conversation. So you don't have to wait until you figured it out to start the conversation. And that's often a thing I think that I know I do, and maybe some of your listeners do, which is let me figure out in my brain what I need to do. And then I'll ask for what I want. And because we do that at work, right? Like here's what we do with our partner. Let them be a part of coming up with a solution with you. This is how I'm feeling. Don't know what to do about that. But, you know, I want us to try to figure something out together. And also the we us language is really, really helpful. (laughs) If you remind your partner, we're in this together. We are a pair. We are a family. We need to figure this out together and not you do this, you don't do that, which again, brings people's hackles up. Those are 
basic kind of negotiations, but a lot of times we don't think of these as negotiations. We think of them as arguments or discussions, but some of those same things you learn about negotiating at work, you can use to negotiate with your partner when there's something that you feel like needs to change. Okay. So it sounds like be in a calm space, in a calm headspace, most importantly, and approach it as a, how can we solve this problem together? And then I'm sure lots of people have something in their minds of what a negotiation looks like. So is it a case of saying, look, let's come up with a solution here. I feel I'm doing a lot more than you. So once you've set that scene, how do you then, what's the way to get to a solution? So I like to keep the win-win in mind because again, like this is not just you're negotiating and everything you get it's not a it's not set up to be a win lose like it is for salary where it's like if you give me more you have less right we all have various things we're looking for and what your partner values might be different from what you value so you might both be able to win quote unquote win right however we want to say it because oftentimes we're thinking from our perspective and assuming our partner feels like Assuming that the way that things are going is because that's what our partner wants and values. And so they're going to have to give something up for us to get what we want. Where the partner might be like, yeah, I don't like doing this anyway. So yeah, this is great. So glad you said something. And I don't think we think of that being an option or an outcome a lot. We don't think that maybe our partner's been waiting for us to have this conversation with them too. And so letting you know that there's such a wide range of outcomes, I think we catastrophize a little bit. We're like, okay, I'm going to bring this up and my partner's going to hate me. And we're going to get in a fight. We're going to get divorced. Like they go, you go to like the worst possible outcome that can come from, Hey, you know, I am really tired and I don't know what to do except for us to think about the way we manage our household together. Like I feel like, and that's so that I feel like is a really nice thing to say, because then that opens up the possibility to say, well, I didn't know you felt that way. And I didn't mean to make you feel that way as opposed to you do this, which is very much accusational, can be like, I feel frustrated when I have to cook dinner every night or always be the one to plan for dinner. It's a very big mental load, not just a time load for me. And I feel very frustrated about that. And I don't know what to do to solve it. Can we talk about it? Like that opens up the conversation and they might not be in a mind space to do that. Be like, well, why don't we just just sit with it a little bit? Think about it. And think about what we want. But I just had to tell you how tired I am about it. Like, you know, and let's think of some solutions. And there's so many different solutions to that sort of thing. If your partner's like, I don't want that load either. That doesn't mean that you have to take it. You all can find other solutions to try to figure that out. Whether that's meal prep, whether your kids are old enough to start helping with that. You can let that go. Whether you can order things. Like there are, you know, many different solutions for things like that. But even just building trust by putting your toe into the water of having these tough conversations, I think is very important actually, because if you don't have a relationship that can handle basic conversations like that, then there's more work you need to do on your relationship. It doesn't mean you should hold it all because it's not like one day everything gets better automatically. Like you have to work to make it better if you're not worried about it. I recently found out that according to Inside Radio, only one in five of the top charting podcasts are hosted by women. And that's despite 50% of listeners being female. I had no idea it was such an old boys club. So if you are finding that this podcast benefited you in some way, and if you're passionate about gender equality in all forms, then 
please take a moment to support a female hosted podcast by sharing this episode with a friend, for example, on Signal or WhatsApp, subscribing and giving it a five-star rating. Thank you so much for your support. Back to our conversation. And you've then really changed the, the focus of your work, haven't you, after focusing on that spousal negotiation. What prompted that change and what, what was it? So, you know, the work on spousal negotiation came from my interest in work and family. And so when I first started my academic career, I was very interested in why women weren't represented in a bunch of these male-dominated professions. Because I'm like, it's not like we can't do it. I'm interested in sports, for instance, and no one wanted me anywhere near sports marketing. They were like, yes, it would be great in you know, sports apparel. And I'm like, no, I want to manage a football. You know what I mean? Like they're not thinking about that. And so I started it. And as I started to do research, I realized how much these assumptions about women as mothers came into that, which is, oh, well, surely you're not going to want to travel all the time once you have kids, right? So we're not going to offer you that position. Or surely when you come back, we'll put you in a manager position, but it won't be a line position. You'll be paid the same, but now you're out of the running for the next five years of promotions, right? And so all of these little assumptions about what it meant to be a good mother and whether that interfered with what it meant to be a good employee was very interesting to me. And that's how we got the spousal negotiation, which was, well, how are partners dealing with these challenging assumptions when they're making their decisions? But in the course of studying this, I realized how much of our research is really focused, particularly in the United States, on white women and white women in very particular professional jobs. And as someone who, from a very young age, was very interested in racial diversity, in the United States, that's predominantly Black and white relations, like African-American, Black and white relations. I had done a lot of studying on that as as an undergraduate and into my MBA program. And so I said, well, where is that conversation happening? And so that got me into more broader conversations about intersectionality, about how women experience what it means to be a woman differently based on their racial and ethnic backgrounds. And so that led me to really think about what motherhood, what, you know, working, what relationships were like different from white and black women. And I, you know, co-authored with a number of different black women about that because I'm not a black woman. So what can I, you know, I need to, to learn and listen a lot about that. And so I built a relationship with a woman, Dr. Tina Opie, who is a visiting scholar at Harvard this year. And she had started to think about this idea of shared sisterhood, which is how could white women and black women come together to really have gender and racial equity at work? This idea of why are white and black women not sharing this feminism? Why? What's going on? And there's a long history in the United States about this, but it also echoes many different countries, long histories of different racial and ethnic. There's different racial and ethnic divides in many different countries, but they're, they're often there. And so she invited me to read this paper. This is a number of years ago, many years ago. And I was like, there's something here and let's do it together. Let's, let's write a book about sisterhood as a sisterhood. And so that was our goal, which was to say, how can we take these same things of spousal negotiation? How can we be vulnerable with each other as women at work? How can we empathize with each other as women at work? And how can we take risks to demonstrate that we're trustworthy as women at work? And I think so in many ways, there are these similar underpinnings of relationships and equity, but shifting it from these partner relationships to these workplace relationships, which I think is, mm. if we're going to actually make change in this, it can't be the typical transactional nature. Mm. And 
I think it's quite interesting because what you're alluding to is this, the fact that women who identify from an ethnic minority, be that black or otherwise, can experience the world in a very different way or mothers from, from white women. And we, I'm a white woman myself, we may not understand what that is like. Can you illustrate maybe with an example of how the experience might be different of combining a big career with a young child for a black mother compared to a white mother? Well, there are, you know, there are different expectations of what motherhood means across race and across gender. And, you know, certain expectations and stereotypes around black women, for instance, are less well aligned with what we think our stereotypes of motherhood are, right? There's, you know, aggression, dominance, that sort of of idea versus the sort of meekness that is often associated with white motherhood right? Like nurturing and calm and those sorts of things. And so those competing stereotypes can be very difficult to navigate. There's also different community norms about raising children and childcare that are different. And we can bring, you know, there are intersections with religion and social class and stuff that come into play. But if I am thinking, for instance, about if I'm a white woman with a young child and I'm looking to move, like the job saying, okay, if you want to move up, you're going to need to go take this job elsewhere. You're going to need to leave your community and go. I might feel more comfortable with the schools my kid will go to. I might feel more comfortable with my ability to find childcare for my child that's affirming than if I'm a black woman and you're asking me to move to a very predominantly white, like, you know, away from my parents who are taking care of my child or the community I'd built for them. And so that's just in my own home life that those sort of extra barriers that I might not have to consider the same way, I might think about the racial diversity of my kid's school because I think it's important, but it might not bear the same weight in terms of what I feel is my child's actual livelihood and well-being and perhaps life. And so I think those sort of moments just on the outside of work, but on the inside of work too, in terms of what we expect, where there's actually interesting recent research out that suggests that I was just reviewing it, actually. I'm not even sure if it's been published yet, so I, I can't even say who's, who's done it at this point. But Black women who are mothers might get a benefit at work because it shows the vulnerability that a lot of Black women who are ambitious, you know, get thought of as being, you know, kind of more dominant and it feeds into those stereotypes. And I think, again, it's an interesting conversation to have just in terms of way our stereotypes make us think about women at work but also the extra burden that a lot of black women or or ethnic what we used to we call in our book historically marginalized a group from historically marginalized racio ethnic groups and that of course you know is everywhere you can look around you if you're in the UK if you're in France if you're wherever you are you can look around and say what are the ethnic racial and ethnic groups that are have been historically marginalized in my community and that there's an extra burden there that has to be navigated when you have young children hmm. I really like the concept of the book because I think there is this pendulum that seems to swing. So for a year or so, everybody talks about women and then there's a strong focus on, on uh, racial equity and back and forth. And it feels like, and to be honest, I've been told by employers saying, well, actually, at the moment, we're just focusing on uh, racial equality. So we're not really... As if black women aren't a thing. Yeah. Well, right. exactly. It's like, let's just focus on race right now. Unfortunately, like gender is, is not an issue and, and vice versa. And I think that's really interesting. And I was just wondering what, what is in it for society to focus on both or not even, it's not just two things, on the multiplicity of all those dimensions that can make you disadvantaged when it comes to being on, at the top, you know, a CEO. 
Yeah. And I think that's the thing, right? Is we like to think of these as separate categories. There's gender and there's race and there's gender identity and sexual orientation. It's a class. These are all separate. And that's the beauty of, I know the intersectionality has become a buzzword where people say it, they don't actually think about what it means. But all that means is that all of these different identities and experiences intersect to make our paths different, to affect us in different ways. And it came out of a legal environment, which is say, you know, what does it mean to be a victim of abuse right? when you're coming through a system that sees you sometimes as a Black person, sometimes as a woman, sometimes as neither and both? Right? Like, what are, what are these things that we're navigating? But the same thing happens in workplaces. If you, one of the things that Tina writes about in, in Shared Sisterhood is, you know, when she was in school, you know, if she joined the women in business group, they were focusing on white women mostly. They weren't talking about the unique challenges black women posed with the way that they dressed or their hair or the way they talked and the different burdens. And if she went to the black in business, they were focused, they didn't also didn't focus on those things. And so where, what is she choosing, right, in terms of doing this? And, and that I think is a lot of racial ethnic marginalized women from from marginalized groups are saying, well, you're making me choose and I'm both. And that is not seeing me as in my fullness of my humanity. It's not respecting the fact that we have these different paths to what that means. And, and a lot of, I think, Black women would say, just listen to me for a minute in terms of how my experience is different from you. It doesn't invalidate yours. It's validating mine. And that is the problem a lot of organizations when you silo these numbers, these metrics, and you're like, okay, what's our gender diversity numbers? And we see this. I go into organizations and be like, oh, we have a very diverse board. And I'm like, you do. And they'll just say gender. I'm like, okay, let's complicate this a little bit. Let's think about this. And it's not always just a count. It's let's think about this in a more complex way, right? What are we trying to do here? How are we ensuring that the norms we set up aren't elevating white women professionalism, like the way that my hair looks, the way that my the expectations for the way that I talk, the all of those sorts of things. And sure, people learn all kinds of things. The question is, why do they have to? And a lot of organizations have a hard time with that why, justifying why our norms are the way they are, why our policies are the way that they are, because those are hard questions to answer. And I think those are the questions I often try to push companies to say is why. Why does it have to be this way if it has a negative effect on a group that's been disproportionately burdened. Why? If you have a good business reason, that's one thing. If it's just this is the way it's always been done, well, maybe perhaps it doesn't have to be that way. Would you mind giving an example of a policy that could have, that wouldn't impact white mothers, but would impact black mothers more? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a hard question, I think. And in terms of policies, it, it might be things like it might be about even like childcare subsidies or where we give childcare, who's available for childcare. It might be, you know, that a policy that has on-site childcare might be more attractive to white women than it is to black women if that childcare is very racially non-diverse. There's an importance of, or bilingual households where they're like, okay, but I'm trying to keep my children and this sort of thing. A stipend would be better for me. That would support my family. Or rules where it's, here's the childcare stipend, but it can't be used for a family member. Well, if you're in a multi-generational family, right, as many immigrant families often are. So, you know, you see these little things that have disproportionate sorts of things, things about hair and clothing that are often not written in policy, but are just assumptions of professionalism, right, about, I see this a lot with hair in terms of, although I've been interesting in the United States, there's actually been some laws that have been trying to be passed that you can't discriminate based on hair, which is really great. It's a shame that you need it. But again, right, we, we, you solve the problems that you're given where it's like, well, you know, what does it mean for hair to be messy? 
like look at my, I mean, your listeners can't see my hair, but my hair is in a very messy bun on top of my head. It looks decent because I have, you know, very fine hair, right? That it doesn't look fly away like crazy. But for someone who has much thicker hair, much curlier hair than mine, this could look messy or what we see is messy, right? And so what has saved me 30 minutes of having to do my hair in the morning might cost someone an extra 45 minutes in terms of their commute in their day. So little things like, and does it matter really? Mm. Does it matter really? And I think that's what I encourage people to always say is, well, what are the unintended consequences of these policies? What are we incentivizing unintentionally? And is it really necessary to do things that way? Mm, that's so interesting. And and actually, your point that it's even before the policies. Um, my daughter's primary school has done something really lovely. But again, why would you have to do that? In the UK, a lot of schools have uniforms and ours has, ours has a quite a strict uniform policy. And they've just in the newsletter said, just be very clear you can wear your hair however you like and cornrows and whatever, you know. And I just think that it's quite sad that they have to say it and that there's an assumption that certain hairstyles aren't tidy. But it's also awesome that they're setting their expectations from and they're challenging assumptions of other schools. And I think that's it. It is important because like if I sent my daughter has hair just like mine, right? And if I sent my daughter to school without brushing her hair, like fine, whatever. Like they, you know, it's she's not, she'll look a little like Matilda. You know what I mean? Like a little like messy hair or whatever. But if she had much thicker hair with much coilier curls, that could look in a way that we would seem untidy, like you said. When it's the same amount of time, the same amount of effort that's being put in, it's just our assumptions and our evaluations of those things. And so sometimes we try to change children or change other people instead of ourselves, right? And that's what I often try to push companies to think about is we're so bold, so creative in some things, right? Like projects and products and all these sorts of things. Well, why can't you do that in terms of how people treat each other? Why can't we have that same creativity and boldness in terms of changing things? Like it. I imagine that a few of our listeners now um, will be very, well, I know that they're very passionate about gender equity and they will be trying to influence organizations. They'll try to push forward flexible working, probably creating a culture within their teams and so on. They might feel quite tired from all this change that they're driving forward. And now here is Beth telling them that actually they should add this whole additional layer. What would you tell them? Why is it worth approaching this from a shared sisterhood angle? One of the things that we try to push in shared sisterhood is that the relationships matter. One thing that's come out during COVID is we are often lonely and separate and bearing the burden of a lot of our challenges alone. Our partner may be the only person outside of, you know, that we talk to. And shared sisterhood, what's unique about it is we're not like, we're not saying that you have to become besties with everybody at work, that you have to have all these friendships, that you have to, a lot of people are like, I can't have any more friends. What we're saying is that the value of these relationships, when you enter into these interactions authentically, and we define authentically in very particular ways, then these can be energizing interactions at work. They can fill your cup when you're feeling drained. They become your partners when you're trying to fight for this. So it's not just you fighting for gender equity at work, it's us. And so, and one other thing that we like to say is like, my life is better because of these relationships that I have with Black women, Asian women, right? That women who are different race or ethnic groups than I am. I am fulfilled more because of these authentic connections. So it's not something that I'm giving. It's not transactional where I have to give something up. It's truly both of us can feel our cups being filled. And so one of the things that we think is very important with the shared sister perspective is that it isn't 
just about one more task you have to do, but it's something that can build us all up together. I really like that. In the UK, the word allyship is is very popular and everyone is told that they should be an ally. But I really love your approach so much more because being ally implies that you're doing something for someone else and you're being this very generous person that is helping this poor, unprivileged person. And yes. actually you're saying is we should just be part of this bigger... Be partners. Yeah, be partners and question ourselves perhaps as well when we, we realize we're doing this big change initiative and the only three people we've talked to have the same jobs as we do, look the same and have the same age children. So thank you for challenging us there. That's one of the main things that we talk about is let's move from allyship as being this benevolence that someone from a kind of more historically dominant group gives to someone from a historically marginalized group towards us being true partners and and standing aside one another. We use some language in the book where we call them moving from allies to co-conspirators, where, you know, which I think has that nice mental image of kind of whispering together on the stairs and fighting again. Right. And I love that because that's, that's what we want, that there's a, there's a joy to it, a fulfillment to it. That isn't just, well, this is one more responsibility that you're asking of me. And I don't even feel like I have that much power anyway. And now you're asking me to do these things. It's like, no, I'm asking you to build relationships with people. I'm asking you to do work on yourself to build relationships with other people. And then those relationships become the lattice work, that net that catches you when you're going to fall. And, you know, we're seeing it work in organizations we work with. But ultimately, I think the the ideology of it is something that is very powerful to me as someone who, whose relationship, I feel like relationships lift me up. Even when I feel, I look and I'm like, oh, exhausted, you know, it's not about another friend that you have to think about presence for text on the whatever. It's about, okay, I know when I go into the office, these are not going to be interactions that drain me. They're going to be interactions that fill me up. And I think that matters. Mm. And so is there anything practical? Let's say someone is listening to this and they are driving change and they look around themselves and have noticed, well, actually, everyone I've spoken to about this new maternity policy is like me. Is there anything practical that you would tell them about how to get started? So in our book, we talk about DIG as being the sort of first step, this introspective step. It's about the reading of the books, all of that sort of work you do to challenge your own assumptions about who you are. But one of the things that I first recommend people to do is to look at your social media. Like, who are you following? Right? Like expand the way you see the world. Because one of the things that social media has done is it has allowed us to not just like read about race, but see someone who is different than us post about their day, see their humanity, right? See the their humor, their life, see them post about their children, see pictures of their children, like all of these sorts of things that humanize people who are different from us. So start with that. Where are you, not just where are you, we talk about that, where are you getting your news? Where, whose lives are you seeing as full, right? So that's the first place that I would, start because then when it's going to allow you to enter in with more empathy and more vulnerability when you interact with people who are different work you know so that's the place that I would start first is just looking at that the other thing that I would say is when you feel that defensiveness right if you're not making you know Tina did not let me in right away we weren't like oh you know here's comes Beth skipping up to me and I'm going to just embrace her as a sister right away I had to prove myself. And it wasn't like she put me through trials and tribulations, but it was, well, I mean, I'm not going to trust you right away. Like, that's ridiculous. And we know that. Yet there's this assumption, I think, sometimes that, well, I know my intentions. I know my heart. So why can't you just accept that right away? And I think 
recognizing that that's not how any of us work, right? And I think that there's, it's not a personal affront to have to demonstrate your trustworthiness before someone trusts you is also a really nice thing to remember. Wonderful. Thank you so much for these practical steps. Is there anything else that you really wanted to share with our listeners that we haven't talked about yet? No, I mean, I can't believe we ran the gamut from me not getting tenure to spousal negotiation <laughs> to shared sisterhood in one like, you know, short podcast situation. That's truly a marathon ride through my life, I have to say. <laughs> I think we might have to repeat this podcast to be able to go into further depth at some point. It's been really lovely chatting to you. If people want to find out more about your work, find yours and Tina's book, where would they go? So all your favorite retailers should have Shared Sisterhood available to you in both ebook form and hardcover. Go ahead and pick it up at any of those favorite places. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org, which has some indie shops. Any You can go to Harvard Business Review. Harvard Business Review Press is where we're through. So you can go to Harvard Business Review's website. So any of those places. And keep your eye open. Buy the book. And we will be continuing to put out what we call digital tools. So book club, all of these sorts of things that can be really helpful towards making change in your own organizations. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Beth. Thank you. This has been great. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you might also like episode 36, where I talk to a group of fellows about expectations of mothers and how to deal with those. You might also enjoy our free event in January about returning to work if you are on maternity leave or have returned um, a very short time ago. If this podcast has been helpful to you and you'd like a practical community to support you, then consider joining the fellowship program. You can find details about this and access any of our free events on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. On the fellowship, you get access to amazing role models who have experience of bringing up kids whilst progressing their careers, mentors, support with practical challenges, for example, workload management or saying no. You'll get support to develop your vision and make a plan for career and family life in small group sessions. And you will access research on what causes career progression and how to implement this practically in the context of looking after young children. In our last cohort, more than half have got promoted or got additional senior responsibility by the end of the programme, and they're all involved in some shape or form in driving wider change for working parents, which really excites me. Oh, and as I mentioned in the middle, if you think the world of podcasting should be a bit more gender equal and less of an old boys club, and you want to support me and this podcast, then I would be super appreciative of you taking a moment to share it, let's say, for example, via WhatsApp or Signal. And also it really helps if you write a five-star review. It just, the algorithm makes it more popular and it gets seen more and so on. So yeah, it would be super helpful. Thank you so much and see you next week. <laughs>